0: Can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? to listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and the Dispatch Media. Very excited about today's uh, guest, first timer, um, which is a. Um, is a black mark against me because I uh, wanted him on for a long time and I, I am a fan and we have many, a great many mutual friends, um, including Adam Smith. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and he's, he's, uh, a, 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 Titan in, um, in a lot of the good and noble fights that, uh, I care about most. Um, and his name is, F- uh, Father Sirico. Um, uh, you may know him from the Acton Institute. I should say Father Robert A. Sirico. Uh, uh, he is our the Remnant's first priest. Um, uh, uh-huh. Unless somebody here, unless somebody was some sort of secret priest that I am unaware of. Um, um, and uh, he's the president of the Acton Institute, which is based in Grand Rapids and does uh, um, not just uh, figuratively, but literally the Lord's work. Um, <laughs> and uh, he is uh, in the great tradition of, he's sort of uh, in the tradition of uh, my old friend, Michael Novak, as uh, someone who cares passionately about reconciling economic liberty uh, with uh, with religion. And he has a new book along those lines called The Economics of the Parables. Uh, Father Sirico, thank you so much for coming on The mm-hmm. Remnant.
1: Joan, it's an honor to be with you and always fun to be with you. I was with your mother at Christmas, believe it or not, in New York.
0: She's uh, delightful.
1: It's great to see her.
0: At, at, at the, the nice thing is that she's finally reaching an age where she can't necessarily drink everybody under the table anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, no, she told me about how she ran into you and she was she was tickled. Um, and uh, so, what, you know... We don't have to get too deep in the weeds on this, but sure. just to sort of to level set, um, I remember a while back I was for for whatever reason I looked up your Wikipedia page and yes. you <laughs> have an interesting biography.
1: I sure do, almost uh, as interesting as my brother's.
0: That's right. <laughs> oh, I forgot. To, yeah, oh, we should also point out that uh, your brother was uh, Polly Walnuts from The Sopranos. He was. Can you imagine growing up in that household? <laughs> um uh so we'll, we'll we'll circle back to that okay sure, okay we, we, this, is like, this way we know we'll hold on to the listeners for a while
1: sure, uh, sure. But you're, why, you're smart you're smart
0: uh why don't uh just sort of you didn't let me put it this way you didn't start out as a right of center free market uh catholic uh uh, uh apologist for for adam smith and 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 Classical liberalism,
1: right? No, not at all. I, I grew up in a largely culturally Catholic uh, Italian Brooklyn family uh, in um, Midwood section of Brooklyn. So lots of Jewish neighbors. I didn't know I wasn't Jewish until I realized our kitchen smelled differently. You know, I can <laughs> I can still keep a kosher kitchen, by the way. Um, and as I went through my my teen years, uh, I began to look at different religious groups. There was a friend of mine in junior high school. who was a Jehovah's witness, uh, lots of Pentecostals and Baptists and stuff around. Uh, of course I went to the, the yeshiva nearby. My brother used to, by the way, skip religious instruction on Wednesday afternoon to play, uh, basketball in the, uh, yeshiva Rambam, uh, <laughs> basketball court. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and, um, But then as I got into my late teens, um, I was involved with charismatic movements and stuff. But then in my 20s, I was introduced to the left. And that had a lot to do with my own personal confusion, uh, my own psychological development. Uh, That led then to a lot of political confusion as well for about four years. So I was involved with the left in, uh, Washington state and then California. Mm-hmm. Um, good friend who was, um, Trotskyite. She always said that I was bourgeois and she was right. You know, <laughs> I, I just didn't know what all that meant. You know, right. I wasn't a serious reader and there was no intellectual tradition in my family as such. We weren't expected to go to college. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't only until after I went through this period of the left, my involvement with the gay movement and the mm-hmm women's movement and farm workers boycott and all that kind of stuff that I finally did some real deep reflecting both on myself and on politics and the intellectual life went to college and ended up coming back to the Catholic church and then going on to the priesthood so I, I'm about five six years out of sync with my my age group I'm 70 now so you mm-hmm. can see what that was so i
0: so did you, was there a uh, on the politics front um, yeah. I don't generally interrogate people too aggressively on their on the religious parts, but on the on the politics side, was there a Saul on the road to Damascus moment? yeah, kind of uh, there was a, a
1: a friend of a friend who I met, and we uh, were talking and I remember we walked outside this was in Hollywood, California, and we walked outside and I saw some right wing bumper stickers, get, mm-hmm. get us out of the UN or something like that. And I mocked it and he said, Oh, that's funny. That's my car. <laughs> I said, really? And I just dove into it full frontal. And uh, he said, you're delightfully ignorant, Sirico. <laughs> he said, let's, <laughs> let's talk. And uh, we became friends. Uh, okay. you know, I'm a good New Yorker. You know, if you, you want to really become my friend, we first have to have a fight right? Exactly. and right. So, uh, he began giving me books. He gave me um, The Intellectuals and Socialism by uh, Hayek and mm-hmm. uh, Mises. That was a tougher go at, at the beginning. Yeah. Bastiat's The Law, Rand, of course. you know, mm-hmm. All of these freedmen was very helpful. Um, and what happened was I began to have questions, particularly about private property and things like that and went to some of my socialist friends, and they just didn't want to talk about it. They just said, oh, that's fascism. I said, no, no, but fascism is, you know, uh, control of business people, and it's socialism, you know. Uh, And eventually what happened was it tripped some levers. I had this political conversion. I'm describing this as though it happened over a weekend, but it really took uh, a better part of a year. And then eventually, um, all of that harkened back to my early experience as a kid in Brooklyn and catechism class, where we were learning basically natural law. Mm-hmm. And all of that precipitated my coming back to the church and then going to college. Uh, and that really set a whole different trajectory in my life. I mean, that's well over 50 years ago now, and um, or just about 50 years ago.
0: So. Um this, I, I can see the segue to the book coming down the pike with this next yeah. line of questioning. Um, the Catholic church and look, I, I am, I am, I am pro Catholic church. I, no, mar- no, I do. I married a Catholic. That. <laughs> I, I all those kinds of things, but, uh, the Catholic church historically going back, you know, with the Thomas tradition and going back to Aristotle, um, was not necessarily pro capitalism, free markets. There was this whole, you know, notion that that um, that interest in and of itself was evil. Um, that you know, money should not beget more money without right. uh, the sweat of the brow and all these various things. And so, it's just it's a little odd. Or it's a little counterintuitive that someone would simultaneously rediscover their Catholic faith, take it very very seriously on the way to the priesthood so serious. yeah, and at the yes. same time be reading hayek and friedman and and von mises uh because you would think one would be pulling you away from in the one direction partner. yeah yeah you know that that's plausible and certainly the guy i was um,
1: debating with at the time had that opinion he was mm-hmm. more of a randian and so he was pushing me toward uh, atheism i saw something in there that only later on subsequent Founding the Acton Institute, uh, did I really? Could I really give you sources for? But I, mm-hmm. I think that there is an intellectual tradition uh, uh, in Thomas, and I think this is part of what Novak saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, he called him the uh, uh, the original Whig. <laughs> you know that that there was this liberal understanding, in the broadest sense of that word, liberal. Uh, the importance of the human person as an individual who is also made for community, who has certain rights by his nature. I mean, a lot of the founding of the U.S. is predicated on this natural law way of thinking about things. And in point of fact, you can't say that prior to the 16th century, the church was anti-capitalist because there was no such thing as capitalism as a a, a systematic way of thinking. In point of fact, it was the scholastics in the 16th century, I come to find out, who really began to systematize this Schumpeter Mm -hmm. uh, in his book on economic history of economic analysis points to the disciples of St. Thomas Aquinas as the originators of systematic economics. Smith comes later. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I intuited this as I was reading these things and you're right. There is no, I mean those, those people I was reading at the time, were all, I think, almost all of them other than Bastiat were atheists. Mm -hmm. And there was no religious discussion. If there was, it was anti-Catholic, certainly, and Mises and stuff. But um, then I bumped into Novak, and he began connecting some dots and then began to do my own research and stuff. And then John Paul II, you know, the year we founded the Acton Institute, John Paul II, Wojtyla, comes on the scene and writes this, Explosive encyclical Chentes Sanos, which is the Magna Carta of, uh, I, I would call it Christian
0: free market ideas. Um, just to close the loop, because like uh, when I came up politically, um, you were already a fixture of free market, right? Uh, you know, the, the this fusionism of Catholicism and, and the free sure. market
1: and yeah Buckley too there there you go to, to be sure
0: yeah and yeah. so was Michael Novak who you know my first yeah. job in washington i had the office next to michael's at ai <laughs> his was nicer than mine um mine was basically a glorified uh closet and his was this wood lined book lined uh lovely thing but i i i knew michael for a very long time and um and so i ne- but i never knew the begats, as it were right about right. like were you and Michael close? Were you like sort of professional rivals? I mean, because like, it's it's, it's one bowl and two big dogs about this sort of Catholicism and capitalism thing.
1: No, no, not at all. When I, I read Novak's uh, Spirit of Democratic Capitalism, just as I was entering seminary and Mm -hmm. connected with him in DC, I, I studied at Catholic University of America and we became close and fast friends. And I would go over to Michael and Karen's and, Cook up antipasto and <laughs> chicken cacciatore, and you know, you, you know, he had this salon, right? That yeah. people yeah. would come to dinner, and and I just had a front seat at the neocon mm-hmm. uh, feast. Um, uh, I remember Claire Booth Luce having debates with Irving crystal and uh, <laughs> Bennett and Jack Kemp, and uh, B. Himmelfarb was there, and all these different people, and and it wasn't just neocons either. Yeah. yeah. It, it, Sampling of libertarians and progressives and and different people, artists and musicians. It was a fascinating formative period. As I'm going through seminary, so I had kind of this, you know, these two uh, reinforcing sets of ideas, and it really helped to to form. I and we remained very good friends uh, until his death. And mm-hmm. uh, we have, in fact, an award in his in his honor, the Novak Award, where we give an uh, up uh, and coming scholar fifteen thousand dollars and try and get him on, on the scene.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, I just, it was my own curiosity. So, yeah. um, we differed politically in, in a lot of different
1: ways. You know, I'm not a neocon. I'm more right. of a classical liberal, but Novak would have considered himself. I think that as well.
0: Yeah. And also, I mean, this is, this is, this is, uh, well chewed over territory for this podcast, but like one of my okay. enduring ideological intellectual gripes is the use and abuse of the word neocon which i'm not aiming yeah. at you but it just the, yeah no like uh you look at the original even even using the term capaciously the original neoconservatives everyone from irving and michael novak norman put uh uh father newhouse michael sure. Novak, and you go down this list weigel, e- weigel and you st- and then you you want to tell me that there was this unifying single <sighs> Ideological exactly. coherence to these incredibly disparate, diverse, sui generis, idiosyncratic thinkers is just sort of ludicrous to me. No, it was an ongoing sell-on.
1: You know, right. it was a debate. I mean, they—they they just, you know, Midge Decter blasting uh, Newhouse, and uh, <laughs> you know, I, this is why I find so refreshing that people could think outside. Of, and today, if we have a problem, we have a problem. These very narrow—I I can't even say. A set of doctrines it's just, it can be one thing that right. sets you off as a heretic in other people's uh, minds I, I really regret what's happening right now and i am working toward bringing a greater maturity not to say charity to the to the dialogue
0: i, I want to get to that stuff because that's 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 sure. my wheelhouse too but we should we should get to the book for a second so just normally when i have someone who has a new book out on my first question for them is what's your book about because that's the f- question you always want to get on a book tour and i figure i should do it for other people so what's your book about? sure well <laughs> what, what the title is <laughs> the economics of the parables but but by that i do
1: not mean that jesus is teaching economics in the parables what i find fascinating is and and it's what I mean by economics. It's, it's not a set of policies. It's not politics. It's not ideology. It's the reality of human scarcity and how we calculate and uh, allocate those resources for human survival. So there's a big breadth of things that we can talk about that come under that. And when Jesus is teaching in the parabolic form, which is not to be confused with, uh, you know, uh, fables. This is not fantasy. These are things of people's lives, a field and how you tend the field and how you find workers and what you pay the workers for the field or what kind of inheritance disputes uh, arise out of family tensions. And all of these are the stuff of the parables and all of these have economic dimensions. And what's impressive to me isn't what Jesus thinks about economics as such but the presupposition Mm. you know you'd think well jesus is a socialist like most people on the left would have the idea and yet he holds up the image of a luxury good to stand in for the kingdom of god the pearl of great price Mm. and the the necessity of sacrificing the willingness to give up everything uh, and speculate he he uses these things that I, what I'm doing is a translation project. I'm putting economic language to the lived experience of most people, certainly in the time of Jesus. And uh, the parabolic form, of course, as you know, wasn't invented by Jesus. The, the rabbis have a great, rich tradition, and Jesus, being a rabbi, mm-hmm. utilizes that tradition.
0: So what do you say, I mean, what is your standard answer to a response? to people who say Jesus was a socialist.
1: I, I found a wonderful quote from Churchill that, that says it better than I could put it. He, he said, and he said this very early, 1908, he said, the socialism of the Christian period said everything that I have is yours. The socialism of today says everything that you have is mine. <laughs> and the difference is the inspired generosity of sharing one's resources with others versus the uh, coercive uh, appropriation of people's property and its redistribution. And that's the the whole difference. Jesus wasn't anti-society. He wasn't anti-social. He wasn't anti-charity. He said that the thing that motivates us is his call to love. And, you know, whatever you want to say about redistribution schemes Uh, You can't say that by virtue of the fact that your money is confiscated from you and used even in good ways to help that really help other people, that you're made better by that uh, deprivation. And I think that's the difference.
0: Um, Right. And that's a very fusionist point, right, is that virtue compelled isn't necessarily virtuous. Um, Right. Right. I also, you know want to just float this thing by you since you're more steeped in this stuff, but you know, one of my problems with the way we talk about socialism is that, um, it is, it, it is so heavily influenced by, by both Marxism and yeah. by what people think Marxism is and, yeah. and the problem with, I mean, there are many problems with Marxism, but one of the problems with Marxism. Or the or let's put it this way: vulgar Marxism is that it is assumed to reduce all human beings to homo economicus, and that's a problem with Marxism. And we can have that conversation. But um, the thing with socialism is that socialism originally, if you look at like the socialism of Babeuf, who's like one of the first, you know, well, the early right. Jacobin types, and all those kinds of people, right? Or if you look at the intellectual conversation of the 19th century. When people were talking about pre-Marxist understand or non-Marxist understandings of socialism, it was, you know, sort of the social question: How should we live? Right. 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 What is the best way to organize society? How, what is the best? What is the best form of not just necessarily economy, but sort of uh, political structure? Communitarian, because the old order was going away, and yeah. the era of industrialization or urbanization was coming in, and it seemed very chaotic, and so. To me, there's a it's a perfectly legitimate thing to talk about Jesus having a social ist or social having there's a form of sure. socialism to Jesus. It's just not yeah. economics because the idea of reducing everything down to sort of material a forces, central planner, uh, right? The, right, uh, right. It, it's, it's a category error to talk about it in that way. But like I, I, as, I think you're dead right. The you, socialism as communitarianism. Yeah, but sure, I mean, how is Jesus sure. not going to be kind of
1: communitarian
0: about Christ? You know?
1: And and all of us really are. I mean, I don't know what an atomistic individual is. I mean, you, you right. came from someone. <laughs> right. You live with people. You use a language. You live within a culture. All of these are social realities. Uh, I think you're dead right, though, about your observation about that historical period in the 19th century. Because a number—I don't know if you remember the book, and now I can't even— th- Think of the name of the author, it'll come to me, but National Economic Planning What Is Left? I don't know if you remember that book. It
0: rings a bell. Um,
1: It really documents uh, some leading light socialists who began with Marx and then separated from Marx once um, Marxism solidified or ossified. Right. Uh, Once it, it, it. built it. So yes, I mean, uh, that would be, and there are today, by the way, uh, a number of religious expressions that you could say are communalistic or socialistic. Uh, The Mennonites, and there's a whole group of people upstate New York uh, and the name of the community. It's a German name. Uh, I've met a number of these folks, and they're beautiful people Mm -hmm. who consider themselves socialists, but not in the sense of a revolutionary or materialistic socialism, but just this, um, this, this sense of generosity and shared responsibilities.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, there's, it was funny. I mean, I I was not a huge fan of Tony Blair's economics or his his sort of Clintonite kind of approach to things, Yeah, but one of the fascinating thing I thought was too clever by half when he first said it, but then the more I thought about it, the more I kind of like it is that, you know, in the, and the the founding charter of the Labour Party is there used to be this straight up sort of Marxist seize the means of production kind yeah. of fatwa to it, and he had it changed, and he said, "Look, I don't believe in socialism, but I believe in social dash ism, in the sense of I believe we are social creatures, I li- believe we live in a society, and that we should have some sorts of, you know." solidarity and reciprocity and c- taking care of people there's a there's kind of a straw man built into that framing because free market capitalists don't disagree with that sure. but it's a better way to think about socialism is like we are social creatures and we should have a society that recognizes that and builds on that in productive and in comforting ways and 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 anyway that's my it's my defense of jesus being called a socialist it yeah, just depends uh, what you mean by a socialist, if,
1: right? If if you put it that way, yeah. I mean, in, in Europe, there is, uh, especially in Germany, there's this um, kind of counter to free markets uh, that says, "We no, we believe in a social market economy. Mm-hmm. And what I always say is, could you point to me any market that isn't social? Right. What does that mean? You're trying to smuggle in something else right, into right. this uh thing. So yeah, of course we can't get away from it. And this is Rand's problem. I think, you know, the hyper individualism. Uh, and if there was ever an atomistic individual, it would have probably been her. Uh, but no, I, I agree with you on all that. Those are good observations.
0: So who, like just broadly speaking, who are you aiming the economics of the parables at? Who's your intended audience? Is it to is it aimed at the existing flock to sort of right the ship, or is it trying to is it a, trying to attract new people to the the cause? Um, who do you who did you have in mind?
1: Well, I think from the beginning, you know, with the work in the Acton Institute, we've always been trying to translate these ideas and shift the way in which people speak about economics and moral responsibility. And uh, I'd like to create a, a whole set of memes or a whole set of stories, this is why the parables mm-hmm. uh, are so attractive, that soften the ideological edges and help us to think again, uh, really think about things. And I think this is what the parables enable us to do. I mean, I would imagine that religious people are going to be interested in this book. I would imagine economics economists, if they ever pick it up, because the minute they see parables, they're going to turn it off. But I, I challenge... Any secular economist to pick the book up and look at what I say, what I draw out of the parables from their own point of reference to say, yeah, I didn't see that. And then I hope, of course, that the faithful will buy it and give it to their preachers, (laughs) you know, uh, because, first of all, the state of preaching in many Christian churches, particularly the Catholic church, is dismal. Mm -hmm. And I think this could enable a, a preacher who wants to improve his or her preaching to uh, connect better with the the audience.
0: So can you just give us, I mean, I want to, I want to, I want to do right by you on the book. Can you give us a good sure, example sure. of, uh, a, one of the parables and its economic implications that would be good for a sermon or for a conversation? Sure.
1: Well, I mean, th- there are 13 that I deal with and there are many more of course, obviously, but I, I just had to get them. Stop done. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, let me see. Uh, I think the um, the parable of the talents is one of the most well known. One, it's the story where um, the this master goes off and leaves in the care of three servants uh, some talents. By the way, the word talent is really an economic unit in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. We have appropriated it to make it, uh, you know, to use as a gift in mm-hmm. our way of expressing. It. Uh, so he gives five, two, and one to these three. Servants and says, "Be productive with them, and I'll come back." And it says that he gives to each according to his ability. So it's interesting that that line is there because it immediately takes off the table the discussion of whether these people were had the capacity mm-hmm. to to do what no, no, they no They that's been assessed. They've been entrusted with this, and he goes away and comes back. And the one who had five produces five more. The one who had two produces two more. And the one who had one buries it in the ground. And returns the one. He doesn't lose the money. He just doesn't bury it. And what I find very revealing about this is that when the master comes back, he's ticked off and he said, why? And what's revealing is the attitude of this servant toward the master. And when I'm reading this from my days on the left, I'm hearing the old Robert <laughs> Sirico or, or, or any number of socialists or leftist friends, because he says, first of all, I was afraid, so I buried your talent. Uh, that's the antithesis of the entrepreneurial spirit, which is willing to risk. Mm-hmm. You, you realize that you know, you're not going to get something for nothing, and part of that is risk. But then he says this. He says, I knew, this is his presumption of the character of the benefactor, right? I knew that you were a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you have not scattered. I mean, isn't this the accusation uh, against the free market that that the making of profit is intrinsically exploitative, that there is this thing called wage uh, slave uh, was a uh, wage slavery. Right. Um, and I thought that's very revealing as an economic theme. And this is in the ancient world. Uh, and he takes the talent. He, he he gives it to the one who has the most <laughs> and then kicks him out. And that's frustrating for a lot of um, people to read, especially more progressive readers of that, because they feel like this poor guy tried his best and he didn't, you know, and, and by the way, in the par- parable it, Jesus said, uh, he it puts it in the mouth of the master. You could have put my money in the bank and got interest on it, <laughs> but you didn't. <laughs> so it, it goes counter to a lot of the, the, the themes or the, you know presumptions of Jesus socialism today.
0: Yeah, it's mean, so it's it's funny. I, I I made this point in in my last book, and it's um, in the Fatal Conceit. Hayek talks about you know the the microcosm and the macrocosm, and the macrocosm is the world of contracts and law and commerce, and and the microcosm is the world of family and faith and friends and close tradition. units tradition, and oh, so. Mm-hmm. The the argument I often use um, it would be on a bingo card for this podcast is that um, you know in the family uh, we are you know Marxist communist whatever in in the sense that it really is from each according to their ability each according to their need to a certain extent you don't char you don't sure. you don't you don't feed your favorite son more better food than your least favorite son right, right? you know right, and right, right. I don't charge my daughter rent yet or any of that kind of thing. And, um, um, and that's because in the family, it is the, 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 the rules of the gazelle shaft don't apply, Uh, you know, but, but also in the family, you know,
1: the kids, and that of course is Hayek's point, right? Knowledge. And, and uh, the impeding of the price mechanism by interventions makes us stupider because we don't know what the real resources are or the costs of delivering them. And in the family, you know, these things, right? So you can give people slack or make greater demands based on your knowledge, your personal knowledge of the thing. And that, that, yeah, no, Hayek is brilliant in that regard. I,
0: uh, and there's also mutual reciprocity, right? It's like, exactly. If, if, if I'll, I'll do things for my nephew that I wouldn't do for a stranger, but I can also, give my nephew a really hard time about paying me back right? exactly. when, when you, when you externalize this stuff to a, a welfare state, no matter how well intentioned bureaucrats can't sure. call you up and make you feel guilty no. that you haven't called your mother or that you know you, you, you need to, you know, you need no. to come visit more. Um, no. and, and, and that's the, and so part of my problem is, is this, this, is that so many of our political problems are the result of confusing the rules of the microcosm for the macrocosm or the macrocosm for the microcosm. Which uh, sort of brings me to sort of the political moment that we are in. And I often think about you or if Michael were still alive, what they would, what Michael would think of this moment in that, you know, you guys did such heroic work for so long uh, uh, undemonizing um, and unstigmatizing the role of classical liberalism in the free market um, and reconciling it to the misperceptions that it had no place in the in it with among religious people or among Catholics in particular, and then within the, just the last few years, it seems like the undertow is completely—you know—the ground has gone completely out from under you guys, and the new mm. hot thing among young Catholic, um right-wingers, uh, I don't even want to call them conservatives, is essentially, you know, some form of either radicalism or statism or radical statism. What, what do you make of all of it? Yeah,
1: it's the—it's that uh, attractiveness of theocracy, you know, that we can, uh, it's very dangerous, uh, and it is the same um, fatal conceit mm-hmm. to, you know, I, I think all the principles still apply. Uh, some of the categories have shifted and the personalities have shifted. But I think it is the thought that uh, we're in a political battle, and the be-all and end-all of this political battle is the acquisition of power. Mm -hmm. And um, as I said in a debate with an editor of a prominent New York religious magazine, which will (laughs) remain nameless, I said, you know, your problem is you think you're going to be on the Politburo. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I say get rid of the Politburo. Right. Because you're not going to be on it. It's going to be Nancy Pelosi on the Politburo, not you. And uh, don't tax the endowment. We wanted to tax the endowment of the Ivy League universities. They said just stop the subsidies to them. Right. Why? Why not that? <laughs> right. So uh, I think there there is this, and and I have thought, what did we miss uh, at that time? Why oh, oh, couldn't? I mean, in retrospect, uh, could we have inoculated? People, but uh, here's my conviction, and I'm a Southern Italian, (laughs) my DNA, and so we're sunny, hopeful people, if not a little cynical at times. Uh, I think the the philosophy, the ideology, uh, the things that I have read from these folks, the Integralists and and the like, and there are Protestant versions of this too. It's not just a Catholic version of it. is so superficial intellectually mm-hmm. that it it won't stand the test of time. It, it'll fall apart. It'll fall apart with them eating each other first of all, because when you're into this kind of divisive mentality, which again mimics a lot of Marxism, mm-hmm. um, uh, I think we'll have to come around. And you know, the Acton Institute has been holding uh, seminars for the um, the whole. Of our lifetime, 30 something years. And we're oversubscribed for the conference coming up in June that you spoke at a few years ago before COVID. Uh, you know, we have a thousand people, it's the largest kind of gathering like that uh, of evangelicals, Catholics, Jews, Muslims, and secularists. And I'm hopeful uh, that that response, that vigor, tells us that people are looking, but maybe not uh, shouting as much about these
0: issues. Yeah, I mean like the, the point you make about the Politburo is exactly right. And it's one I make a similar point on here all the time. It's like people like us have been invoking Hayek's knowledge problem stuff forever. And it's a powerful argument. S- it's a fantastic argument and it's not it's not it's not an argument aimed the only reason it's aimed at the left is that up until five minutes ago it was the left that was the only side of the ideological right. spectrum that was passionately invested in planning and rule right. of experts. And right. it doesn't become less powerful when the right says, Oh, no, but we'll have the right experts and we'll have, yeah, you right. know, we'll know what to do and we're sure. smarter than the commodities yeah. markets in, in Indochina or wherever. I mean, it's just, it's so yeah. frustrating to listen to people say um, that all of that just doesn't apply to social conservatives who want to run the economy it only applies to left-wingers who want to run the
1: economy. yeah it's like they're immaculately conceived they're not going to be tempted by the corrupting uh, right. influences of power uh of course they are of course they are and that's why what we need to do and and the other thing that concerns me is that a lot of this goes under the patina of of uh of patriotism mm-hmm. uh, this is really a renunciation of the founding Mm -hmm. You know, because the division of power in the American founding was a key notion. It was the unique contribution that America makes in political uh, science and to, to want to kind of consolidate this into a personality
0: is (laughs) scary. Yeah. And also just on the pure political question, I mean, you know, look, I mean, look, if I had to choose, if you told me I had to choose between, you know a form of autocracy that was completely antithetical to my values versus a form of autocracy that was more, you know, consonant with my values. I'd rather not, I don't, I I like to think it's a false choice and I don't want to, I reject both, but like I get, I get the argument that, you know, but the problem is, is like, that's not the choice, right? I mean, the, the idea that's it, that you're going to get, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the populist libertarians that freaked out about wearing masks during COVID right. Or the bikers for Trump yeah. that you're going to then sign them up for a new ultra montane theocracy that is going to <laughs> reinstall the Sabbath and ban pornography as much as there's good arguments to do both. Sure. Um, it's just sure. politically ridiculous. And if you take yeah. its it's like that line from man for all seasons where, you know, he says, uh, you know, of course I want the rule of law because that's what protects me when Satan turns around on me. And the idea of following this idea of, of giving the state the power to do all of the censorship, to ban, to to take the endowments of various institutions and all these kinds of things and think that you're the only one who's going to get to use that power is just strikes me so politically naive. And yet it's, it's all over the place.
1: No, it is. It, 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 And during the election, you know, it was a you have to vote for one or the other. Excuse me, this is not binary. I don't mean right. to use the word binary in this context, but it's it's not. Uh, you know, do I want to die by a gun or a knife? You know, right. that's that's the the alternative. No, I want to create a new alternative. Uh, I I want, and I'm convinced that these ideas are true, and that if we can articulate them in persuasive and winsome ways. In respectful ways that that doesn't um, compromise the, the the ruthlessness of the truth, mm-hmm. uh, I think we can get somewhere, but it's going to take us a while. I think because right now there's this fascination with this. It's
0: it's a new trend. It's mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm with you, and I, and I also. If you actually think our ideas, broadly speaking, are true, obviously we're always open to correction and new evidence sure, and sure. all that. But be, but if you if you generally believe that that at the end of the day the only thing that actually creates reliable economic prosperity is some form of the market, um, if you honestly believe that um, that America is a fundamentally good and decent country that that treasures its freedoms not for some grand abstract thing but for sort of that's just what our culture is and that's who we are then you should have a little faith that bad ideas will will demonstrate themselves as bad in yep. the, over the full fullness of time you know it's as edmund burke says examples the school of mankind and he will learn it no other yeah but in our line of work <laughs> it's very frustrating to say okay no. let them make mistakes and then we'll learn from the mistakes I think if we can point out that what they're doing
1: is trying to avoid the hard work of building culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think we have obsessed on politics. Everybody is, uh, this is the, the, the ideal politician has to be a complete package. He has to be the nanny in chief. He has to be the pastor in chief. He has to be the technician, uh, you know, all, all of this stuff. And I think we need to come to accept once again, that a politician is one role in a society with a, a, a division of labor, if you will, you know, uh, and they need to be more modest. When I'm asked to pray at uh, political events, I always pray for modesty on the part of political leaders. They, they just assume too much. Uh, and, and we've given that to them. I, I gave a whole lecture once at uh, something and was talking about all these things about limiting government and dividing power and all this. And, this guy was so enthusiastic about what I said. Stood up in the bank. he said, "Father Sorico, when are you going to run for president?" <laughs> and I said, "I have a higher calling." <laughs> you remember the old Hebrew International <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. commercial? Uh,
0: I said, "You didn't listen to anything I said." Yeah, no, it's it's it. So, like, so let's flip that on its head because that's a good point, right? I mean, part of the problem, I think, you'd agree about why we put too much faith in politicians and in politics is cause we're not putting enough faith in other things that are more appropriate right. objects of our faith. Right. Um, you know, what do you practically, what do you think, whether it's the Catholic church, I mean, I don't know what the rules are, but what you can say and can't say on that front, but like ca- the Catholic church or the church in general, Christianity or religion in general, are there practical things that can be done that can, um, help with the habits of the heart of, of America? Oh, of course.
1: I hope so. What are you hanging in the business <laughs> well, for? So wh- the, what are they? The pro- <laughs> but the problem is that they, they're not um, uh, to be analyzed quarterly. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Right. Uh, so, you know, I've been, uh, in addition to my work with the Acton Institute for the last 30-something years, uh, I've also been full-time in ministry that whole time. I never was just acting. Uh, mm-hmm. People in our world just saw that but people in my other world uh saw me as a pastor Mm -hmm. and uh, i just retired from the parish where i was for 10 years when i took it over as a dying parish a kind of inner city parish uh there were 68 kids in the school and the bishop said when i went in you can close it if you want and i said well let me just get to know the people and it'd been neglected i mean financially uh no scandals but just just neglected, the mm-hmm. physical thing, spiritually. And I just set about, uh, I decided we're going to refound the school. It was founded in 1908. We refounded it as a classical academy mm-hmm. and just drew people around us who wanted that to happen. And f- to make a long story short, from that day to this day, now there are 400 kids in that school. Mm-hmm. They go to Mass every day. They learn Latin from kindergarten. To, and we start started a high school. This is the first Catholic high school in Michigan in 50 years, uh, and the church is is blowing up. And 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 the the reason for that is I concentrated on the faith, building communities. You know whether it's Bible studies or pietistic uh, you know devotions that we have in the Catholic tradition, service to the poor, but not service to the poor where we outsourced it. We did it in our community. Every, every We take two collections every Sunday. The second collection just goes to the poor so that we have a committee who gets to know people and helps people and leverages the helping. So it's not just a matter of giving people money. It's a matter of fixing a car so they can go to work right? or, or you know, paying a rent or paying a light bill at a bad time of the month. We get to know people. And we do it not because they're Catholic, but because we're Catholic. So it's not a matter of them... Coming to our church, though some of them do, and some of it happens within the church. What that's done over ten years is built this kind of interactive community of people, reinforcing one another, so that there's these spontaneous things that happen when when women have babies. All of a sudden, I noticed this one Sunday, they they put a, a food tree on on the website, so that for the next month, people were bringing food over to the house, so that the mom didn't have to. Mm-hmm you know uh make food for a whole family after giving birth so though that little and now that school with these 400 kids in it that's going to be potent in years to come because those kids can tackle the big questions they know about art they know about uh, uh aristotle they know about language they know about history and i think that's going to be very potent and if everybody would just have the confidence in our faith tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, Hayek's point is, you know, is that you can't just dismiss tradition because if it keeps going, there's something in it that has a resiliency. It's telling you something. Right. And I think a lot of, especially in the 60s, a lot of religious leaders said, well, we've got to be relevant mm-hmm. to the world. And they abandoned their own traditions. Right. And I, the results of that, you see, at least from a Catholic perspective, it's decimated the church. right? Uh, the churches that are growing are churches that tend to be traditional, conservative, and have these kinds of values.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, if, if I had a dollar for every time I brought up Chesterton's fence around here. Right. Um, but it's exactly that point, right? It's yeah. like yeah. there are some traditions that are bad and should go away, but you have to understand the role that those traditions played before you say they can go exactly. away because they might be the things that are holding up. A whole bunch of other
1: something species. you don't see, yeah, right. Oh.
0: So just on the on the question of politics and religion, um, you know, uh, there's, you know, there's there's now a, b- a big boomlet for this thing they're calling Christian nationalism, which I reject for all sorts of reasons. But the Ooh. thing that sort of offends me the most is that they think it's a new idea and it just drives me even even the integralists they talk about it as like this is this new idea and it's like go back and read old issues of triumph magazine from the 1970s i mean like this is not new but um where you know are there are there specific issues that you think a good christian a faithful christian or a faithful catholic has to vote or subscribe to when it comes to politics? Or is it, are these, or should we keep these streams apart?
1: I think there needs to be a a distinction and certainly an institutional separation Mm -hmm. of the two. But I think it's unfair to expect people not to bring their moral religious sensibilities to the public square. Whether that has to be uh, reduced to a particular policy, Mm -hmm. is a different question uh if if we said no you just leave your morals at the door we wouldn't have had emancipation we wouldn't have had the civil rights movement um uh so i think that's part of it and i think that the movement today in that regard is of course abortion um and uh, i think the defense of vulnerable human life uh requires law. If you believe in law, I, I guess if you're an anarchist, then no, you know, that doesn't apply. But if you believe in law, that has to at least be the thing. Now, even that leaves you some decision about how that should be implemented. It should be in, implemented by the state, should it be implemented by a federal ban, those, those kinds of things. Um, but I think in general, this whole world of policy and politics on a general level ought to be guided by principles. And these are very um, ancient, reasonable principles of -hmm. of the natural law of reason. I think part of the thing that's complicated our um, discussion is that we act on emotivism in so many. I mean, you you see many of the debates about the transgender stuff. Mm -hmm. It's just very frustrating because people are no longer thinking logically, which is a separate question from how we should treat people who, right. who find themselves with sexual dysphoria or whatever it happens to be. Uh, so I I don't think there uh, uh, that my religious faith gives me policies, even economic policies. It gives me principles, right. and then the 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 art of reducing those principles to policies is is politics that that's what it is so i I think but we need reason in order to adjudicate this in order to understand it and really have a debate so no i don't think uh, you know jesus said and i think this is distinct from what i see in islam Uh, jesus says render unto caesar what is caesar's and unto god what is god's And he sets in motion there this ability to make a distinction between the church and the state, as we come to call it now. Uh, and the church hasn't always been great about that in all of mm-hmm. its period in history because there were theocratic uh, tendencies um, in in all religions, really. Uh, well, many, anyway. Uh, in Islam, it's more monistic. You know, it is mm-hmm. it is Sharia law. And I know that there are a body of um, Muslim scholars now that, that are trying to to kind of parse this thing and and mm-hmm. come up with ways from within their own tradition that they can understand these distinctions so um no I think uh theocracy is destructive both to theology and to uh, our political life our social life
0: yeah I, I I'm totally with you on this I mean the the render under Caesar thing uh whatever people's judgments on it as a theological proposition, I think as a sociological proposition is where is really where you start getting liberty and capitalism, yeah, and free markets exactly. from, right? And the, exactly the Saint Augustine city of God, city of man distinction is hugely important um, because it starts this process of creating social space for how to deal with strangers you disagree with. Exactly, and um, and I I think that the the, the, dis, part of, you know, part of my problem with the, the Christian nationalism or the integralism or the, whatever, whatever labels we're going to put on these things is, is this gets precisely to that point, which is yeah. that when you have, when religion recedes from the world, this is a very, you know, uh, Eric Vogelin kind of, uh, Vogelin kind of point, uh, when, 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 when proper religion recedes completely from the world. The religious instinct starts making other things into a religion, and exactly the problem is is those other things, those false gods, those golden calves, those nationalisms and socialisms, whatever, do not have inherent limiting principles. No, they have teeth, right? And so yeah. the problem is, is like when Jesus says, "Render under Caesar what Caesar is Caesar's and under God what is God." You know, like that's a limiting principle, right? And limiting principles are hugely important in politics because if you have no limiting principles, then everything is permitted for whoever has power. And yeah. that's the that's the bad path I see a lot of people going down.
1: And then people don't understand the difference between voicing uh, a strong opinion, even a moral opinion on something, right, and coercion. I mean, I right. I want to say some things about moral life, family life, human sexuality, but then you know, the people on the other side of that question say, "Well, you see you're trying to coerce me." I'm not trying to coerce you. I'm trying right. to convince you. I'm trying to propose something to you, not impose it on you. You don't want to agree, then we'll agree to disagree. You know, we'll be free as long as you're not going to kill people in the process of this. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want to kill or jail you either.
0: Right. Also, I got to say, just circling back on the point you made earlier about the scholastics in the the Thomas tradition, um, the, the, the argument that, reason should be our guide in most things, including how to form a properly formed conscience, Mm -hmm. I think is inseparable from the rise of uh, of, of free market economics in the sense that reason demands evidence Mm -hmm. to support claims and, um, and and so the way I always think about it when it comes because I was I was I was when I asked you the question about what are political positions that are required by faith to hold, um, I was wondering whether you're going to say helping the poor, because I mean obviously that's a big part of Jesus right and it's a big part of Christianity. Sure, it's a big, but the to me whenever I have these arguments with people who say oh. Christians are hypocrites because they, they want to impose their values for this, but not for that. And they, Jesus talks more about poverty than he talks about any of these other things. Mm-hmm. I think those are all good debate points to one extent or another, but the, the, the real question is, I don't, I don't know anybody on the right, whether they're religious or not, who doesn't want to see the poor helped.
1: Well, and so, you know, Arthur Brooks, says says a whole book,
0: <laughs> Arthur Brooks
1: has a whole book demonstrating that conservatives tend to actually do more including give more blood (laughs) than progressives do and it goes to the point of the parable of the the good samaritan that i handle in the book that's not the model for the welfare state it's quite the opposite the man's engagement with the 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 man he finds on the road to jericho is is personal intimately personal where he's using his own money, his own physicality, his own beast to transport him. He even obligates himself to the man, to the uh, innkeeper and says, look, uh, when I come back, if you spent any more on him, uh, I'll take care of it when I get back. It's the antithesis of a bureaucratic response. It's a charitable response. It's a personal response. It's suffering with, Mm -hmm. not giving to.
0: Right, right. And this idea that voting is a substitute for personal charity yeah. is really poisonous when you think about it because destructive you're asking you're you're telling people that it's, your soul is being improved by voting for someone who's going to force someone else to do something that you right. can't be bothered to do yourself
1: right. and <laughs> that, that that goes to the question we talked about earlier that that um people don't want to take the time to build the culture yeah and yeah. that's what you need. We we need to rebuild those institutions and the spirit
0: that animates those institutions. All um, right. So I promised we would we circle back to this, and you talk about building the culture. We should talk about building the pop culture. Your brother, <laughs> Tony uh, Sorico, yes, uh, yes, was Paulie Walnuts in The Sopranos? Um, He was in a lot of other movies too. Goodfellas. No, I know, yeah. I, I know. He's also like. There was a period in the mid to late 90s where basically every movie that had anything to do with the mob had somewhere between one and seven characters who eventually were on The Sopranos. Right, right, (laughs) right, right.
1: right. My brother Uh, knew um, Woody Allen used to go to the same school we went to, 10 years older than me, so I didn't uh go to school with him, but my brother went to school with Woody Allen too. Really? Uh, so oh. that's why he was in a lot of Woody Allen's movies. I think that my brother was in more Woody Allen movies than any other actor other than, uh, who is it? What's her name? Uh, uh, not the former wife, not Mia Farrow,
0: but the uh, the other one. Oh, it's going to come to me after we Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't have brought it up. Um, so uh, this is, you know, the fact that your brother was uh, uh, Paulie Walnuts is it's, it's the only right-wing pop culture trivia that can compete with the fact that Al Pacino was an intern at commentary magazine. Was he? Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> <Isn't> that great. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> Back in its radical days. So he was right. more like, you know, the fire next time period. Sure, than, okay. Okay. I know, didn't know uh, that. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um. So like, I love the Sopranos. I love, you know, Godfather is my movie and all that kind sure, of stuff. Sure. But, um, one and two, now,
1: there is no three. Godfather.
0: I well, why no do, you three. know What no. are you talking about? I, no, that's a
1: good, three, good. Okay. Yeah, okay. We're, we're, we're there. <laughs> uh,
0: um, but the, you know, every now and then I'll get blowback from people who, and which, and this is a point that the Sopranos kind of set, sent up in the actual show who want to turn any discussion of the mafia and stuff into, uh, anti-italian bigotry <laughs> and i'm just yeah. wondering like internally like was this something that that y- you ever give much thought to did your brother ever think you know oh not this for something minute. to worry about or anything like that
1: no I, I i you know i've had this argument with people on that side you know italian sure. i just think that we're trying to imitate uh, a culture of of you know grievance mm-hmm. uh it it authentically portrayed a certain section uh, that is deplorable and despicable uh, in the Italian culture. Uh, And what what more can you say? If if you're going to restrict art to doing that, what I find more um, compelling about The Sopranos, at the same time The Sopranos was on, uh, which is very East Coast, Italian, New York, mm-hmm. there was uh, Six Feet Under, mm-hmm. which was California and um, all the rest of it. Six Feet Under had no moral universe. Mm-hmm. It was always very ambiguous. They introduced a scene or a, a, a line of the, the thing, and it was initially kind of repugnant. Mm-hmm. And then over time, they would wear you down and it would become this kind of subjective, Acceptance mm-hmm. of whatever it happened to be, in the Sopranos, it was a moral universe. Yeah. You knew what was right and what was wrong, mm-hmm. and uh, I appreciated on that level. I think on that level is far more sophisticated.
0: Yeah, morally I mean, speaking the the, I remember writing about this at the time about why if there was. So my wife's position is that uh, this glamorizes the mob, and that's why she's against it. And I get it and then I just move on yeah. and watch it anyway. But uh, the, the I think one of the things that appealed about The Sopranos, particularly in the late 90s, and it's an interesting point about Six Feet Under, is that one of the go-to concepts and lines from The Sopranos was there have to be consequences. Yeah, right? And there was something about this idea that you could pay a steep price for your mistakes um, I think was yeah. very compelling to people, particularly yeah. as uh, the irony that, This was true in his, you know, in his, to put it in our terms, in the Gesellschaft of the mafia. Yeah. But he didn't apply it to his own kids, right? Right. Right. In a lot of ways, The Sopranos was really a dark comedy about the suburbs and bourgeois life. Yeah. He was, you know. He was.
1: And I think it only glorifies the uh, criminality and all of that, the mafia, by segmenting it out and not Mm -hmm. taking the whole of it. Because there's nothing more depressing. I I remember thinking this when I saw Goodfellas, which, again, presented the whole ambiance of that world, that Italian Catholic world, uh, so authentically. Uh, I walked out of that theater saying, isn't it something how these people will give their souls to be able to have a few things that drop off a truck? I mean, look at the way they lived. Yeah. They they didn't even live even Tony Soprano didn't live this happy life. Yeah. Uh I don't I don't think it glorified it. I, I think it put the skids under it. But precisely yeah. what you say, the consequences of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, the it's funny, there's there's only the the the, the most sort of and I'm not picking teams here, but there's a, a Jewish character in it who appears on I think only one episode. Uh uh, Were you talking uh, Sopranos? Yeah, where Carmela is shopping for uh, uh, lawyers and, to get oh, the yeah. yeah, yeah, And he says, here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm not going to take your money because I don't take blood money. Right. L- leave him. Don't take anything with you uh, except your kids. Um, that was a psychiatrist,
1: and- wasn't it? It wasn't a lawyer. Well,
0: I, I feel... He, he, I have to go back and check. I could swear it was a lawyer, but I, you're right. It, the tone of it was like a psychiatrist. And, um, but his whole thing was, you can't say you weren't told. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, and I thought it was an interesting intrusion of sort of external morality, yeah. objective morality into a very subjective, you know, kind of do, do I, yeah, do I, yeah, do I have
1: a second to tell you some background on this? A very interesting little nugget. I don't think I've ever discussed sure. it publicly. um, about that time, and I forget where that appears in all of mm-hmm. the uh, the episodes, David Chase called me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had met David Chase. He's the creator of The Sopranos. Yeah. Uh, I had met him when I'd been on set with my brother on a few occasions. And he said, I want to ask you to advise me about Carmela because I want her to undergo a religious conversion. Mm. Uh, I think that was about the fifth um uh, not episode, what do you call it? Uh, Season. Season, fifth season, sixth season maybe. He said, but I can't have her divorce her husband. Oh, really? And I said, of course not. I said, why why would you think that? And he said, well, because of the blood money. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, in Catholic theology, the marriage is sacramental. And we discussed it and created a a character of a priest Mm -hmm. who happened to be uh, African uh, just Mm -hmm. because I, We had a visiting African priest who walked by my office as I was talking to David Chase. (laughs) And I said, why don't you put him in the confessional? And I told him in the confessional, not just in an office and she'll bring this up and he will advise her, uh, about how to handle this. And she can take the refrigerator, but not the diamond ring. (laughs) She can, you know, take the school tuition, but not the big car. And, And there's that little conflict in that, that, uh, episode, from that uh, to show that you, you have to live in a, in a real world and make these kind of prudential decisions. After that, by the way, uh, he asked me, uh, I got a message. They wanted me in two episodes of the Sopranos to play a priest, <laughs> which I eventually, really? I declined. <laughs> I said, I'm not um, the actor. You got the wrong Sirico.
0: <laughs> oh, I think it would have been great. at like the, it's not the San Gennaro festival, but that, 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 uh, the, it the was equivalent. the San Gennaro, that yeah. Was it the San Gennaro? Or <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 they New didn't York? call
1: it that in the thing, but it was all the San Gennaro, yeah, in Little um, Italy.
0: I think you would have been great, you know, saying <laughs> I'm, you, we need a bigger fee if you want the uh, crown. <laughs> 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 right. purely you know, right. transactional. That's okay. Yes, yes. All right, my friend, thank you so much for doing this. I hey, hope you'll come back. I'd love to. I'd
1: love to. Delight to be with you. Easy conversation
0: thank you for doing what you do. And, uh, um, again, the, uh, the, the, the book is the economics of the parables and, um, we'll put a link to it in the show notes and all of that. And father Sirico, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. You be well. Okay. So father Sirico has left the studio. That was a lot of fun. I always forget what a pleasant guy he is to talk to. And, um, he's so self sort of sort of avuncular in the best, you know, self-assured kind of seen it all, um, um, kind of guy, uh, and really just a sweet man. Um, obviously I have many more views on many of the topics that we discussed, but no pronounced disagreements with father Sirico. Um, I am leaving for, we were recording this on Wednesday at 11 something AM. I'm leaving for Alaska tomorrow. Um, so I, some of the logistics of various podcastery and newsletter stuff will, uh, I've yet to figure out. Um, but, uh, if you are a, um, subscriber to the, what we call internally the free list for the dispatch, there are a couple hundred thousand of you who gets, get the free newsletters, but aren't, uh, uh, paid up members of the dispatch community. Uh, you're probably going to be getting an email from me in the next day or two, or I, I don't know if it's the next day or two, but within the next few days, um, asking you to um, consider uh, signing up for the whole Magilla, And uh, I would love for you to do it for all the right reasons, and I will try to lay out some of them when I finally write this thing. Um, but uh, I'd also like you to do it just because I would like to have the most successful pitch letter of this sort in the history of the dispatch and, and, and humiliate Steve and David and Sarah, um, in the process humiliate strong, but, um, you know, just show them who's boss. Uh, so if you're inclined to, uh, give it a whirl, uh, you know, uh, look for this email from me and, um, uh, um, and become a member. I think you'll be glad you did. And now that our own Ryan Brown is the, is the czar of community relations, you will get to interact with, Uh, him uh, a great deal and and beyond that uh, thanks so much for listening and I'll talk to you next time